we're to cherish life it's a gift from god right we're to preserve it when possible the flip side of that though and i find this is something that we can really struggle with is that god also has authority over our life and death this side of the fall the wages of sin is death all of us are going to die until christ returns friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm so thankful you're here to join on today's conversation with author and writer, Dr. Katherine Butler. We're talking about her book, Between Life and Death, a gospel-centered guide to end-of-life medical care to become better equipped to handle medical decisions for our incapacitated loved ones. We'll take a look at how common critical care procedures affect the body, discuss what it feels like to wake up as a patient in the ICU, unpack common misconceptions about what it means to protect the sanctity of life, and learn how the gospel of Jesus Christ gives family members wisdom in the midst of overwhelming medical situations. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest, Dr. Catherine Butler, who gave me permission to call her Katie, is a trauma surgeon who is board certified in surgical critical care. After a decade of experience in surgery, she left clinical practice in 2016 to homeschool her children. She now writes for Desiring God, Christianity Today, and the Gospel Coalition on topics intersecting faith and medicine. Hey, Katie, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Oh, Christine, thank you so much for having me. Your new book is called Between Life and Death, and it compassionately tackles the challenging topic of making end-of-life medical decisions for our loved ones from a distinctly biblical worldview. Can you give us some background on the book and why you were so compelled to write it? Yeah, sure. So my uh, expertise is in trauma and critical care, which is a fancy way of saying that I would take patients to the operating room and then care for them afterwards after they'd been through massive trauma from a car accident or had perforated diverticulitis in their abdomen, some kind of catastrophe that required surgery. And I had particular interest in the ICU. So that period after we've taken somebody to the operating room where we're trying to support them and when um, the illness that's afflicting them is most life-threatening. And I went into it for the success stories. I loved coming alongside people when they were most vulnerable and most in need and using the tools that God's given us in medicine to try to usher them back to their families. That was just such a tremendous privilege. But what I noticed as time went by, we would have these meetings sometimes several times a day in the ICU with families uh, where it became apparent that the technology that we have that can save life in the right circumstances can also cause tremendous suffering and prolong death when we use it at the end of life without discernment. And what I would see is that families would be thrust into these heart-wrenching scenarios of having to make decisions for their loved ones about whether or not to continue, continue a ventilator, whether or not to continue dialysis for someone who is dying but is still alive on machinery and not knowing where to turn and not knowing what the answer is or what the right thing to do is, all while they're grieving and scared for the impending loss of a loved one. The environment is so foreign 
to what lay people see day to day. We don't talk about death. Death used to be something that was part of the community experience. It was a spiritual event. Its spiritual underpinnings were very closely tied to its practical realities. So you would die in your own home with family around you and there would be a pastor there. For the past 50 years, that environment has shifted to a very heavily medicalized setting. So we don't know what death looks like anymore. And now it's surrounded by technology and vocabulary that we just don't understand. So people are floored and completely knocked over by the dilemmas that they have to face, all while they're scared and grieving for their loved ones. And so my hope in writing the book was to try to decode some of the jargon, to try to help people understand what are these technologies we have that can sustain failing organs, uh, when are they helpful, and when do they actually incur suffering unnecessarily, and to also then unpack scripture in terms of what it tells us about life and death and suffering, so that they can have a sense of how to navigate these situations with some peace and discernment, and be equipped with questions to ask their pastors and their doctors, just so that they have some guidance and they're not feeling the burden of all of this on their shoulders and feeling like they're dealing with it alone. I was just telling you a few minutes ago before we started that I really felt like this book was one of those books for me personally that I didn't know I needed to read it until I read it. And now I just want to tell everyone, you know, you do need to prepare yourself because in one way, shape or form, these are all roads we're going to cross. You know, from what I've observed, the relationship between faith and medicine has been a rocky one. We have people who believe entirely in the faith healing system and the refusal of medical treatment. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have a secular medical system that views human beings as simply bodies to fix and sustain or even terminate with a spiritual care being a box to check for last wishes and funeral planning at best. You write in your book, however, that compassionate gospel-centered guidance in end-of-life care requires a consideration of medical technology through the lens of heaven. So how does the Bible's wisdom on faith and the practice of medicine help us level out our approach to seeking treatment for our bodies, especially when it comes to major critical trauma? Absolutely. So first of all, I, I just want to mention that I agree wholeheartedly with the dilemma that you just framed, meaning that um, there's a big divide between what goes on within the hospital and the spiritual issues that we're trying to navigate as we're dealing with life and death issues. And and this has actually been studied. There's a fantastic book out called um, Hostility uh, to Hospitality by the Balboni husband and wife team. They're a doctor and theologian team. And they did a study of 75 terminally ill cancer patients across several Boston hospitals. And they did a cross-sectional study asking them about their experiences of spirituality within their illness narrative. And 84% of them said that they had spiritual concerns about their illness and about thinking about death. However, only 1% of them said that their physicians had actually referred them to chaplaincy, which just speaks of this hugely stark divide. You know, so when we think about death, it's, it's a spiritual event because it's us crossing from this world to communion with Jesus. And it's important to us because it's what makes the gospel so sweet, knowing that it is not the end for us. And so when we're thinking about these issues. There are four principles that I outline in the book that I think are just helpful um, because what can tend to happen is when you're scared and you're overwhelmed and you're trying to make the quote-unquote right decision, you can cling to one idea from the Bible without looking at the whole 
narrative arc and the whole message of the Bible in terms of we're saved in Christ. Um, and so the things that I, I encourage you to think about is that number one, mortal life is sacred. So this is the whole principle that guides us to protect the unborn, um, that guides us to resist against physician-assisted suicide, which is not biblical, okay? Um, we're to cherish life. It's a gift from God, right? We're to preserve it when possible. The flip side of that, though, and I find this is something that we can really struggle with, is that God also has authority over our life and death. This side of the fall, the wages of sin is death. All of us are going to die until Christ returns. And so when we fight against death at all costs, we're actually denying the great beauty of the gospel, that we need not fear death because Christ has taken on our punishment for us. And we know that when he returns, we will be born again. And so it's, it's a, a balancing act of realizing that we should preserve life when we're able, uh, but that when death arrives, and it will arrive to all of us, to accept that as also being part of God's sovereign work. Sometimes you're dealing with issues that are not black and white, life or death, but you're dealing with this vast middle ground where recovery, full recovery isn't possible, but you're dealing with suffering. And that's something where we need to consider that the people for whom we're making decisions are image bearers of God. And we need to think very carefully about what is their understanding of suffering. You know, we are to preserve life when possible, but the Bible doesn't mandate that we chase after aggressive measures that are going to inflict terrible suffering upon us without a commensurate benefit. And then the last thing I think which is just so important to keep in mind is where we're con considering all of these principles is that we need not fear death because of what Christ has done for us. The inspiration for the title of the book was actually Romans 8, 38 to 39, because in Christ, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything in all creation can separate us from God's love, thanks to what Christ has done. And that to me reigns true when we're talking about ventilators or dialysis or ICUs or surgery or any of these things that so terrify us. There was a line in your book when you were talking about a patient uh, who did not want to be put on a breathing machine. And you said that the plan of care had shifted from cure to comfort. And these words really popped out at me because they're so contrasted. I think because to state something like that so starkly feels like waving a white flag of surrender. And, you know, who wants to arrive at that point where cure is no longer an option? That's a hard place to be. I know I personally was there when my dad was dying from cancer and we had to walk alongside him for months as he suffered. It seems mm -hmm. like it would be wise for us to have a solid understanding of the concept of health as a whole from a biblical worldview. And you just started to touch on it in your previous answer, but maybe you can expand a little more. How can believers in Christ view the concept of health in a way that helps us understand what it means to be healthy in Christ, even when mm -hmm. our bodies are not responding to medical treatments. Yeah, I think, I think the Westminster Catechism helps here. Thinking about what is the chief end in man of man, we can consider health to be a good, and it is a good, but is it an ultimate good? Is it really the one thing that we should be striving after at all costs? Or do we realize that this side of the fall, our bodies will fall apart. The treatments do run out. It's inevitable for all of us. But we have a hope that surpasses that. And what matters, I think, what the Bible teaches us is that chasing after physical wellness 
is not as important as your fellowship and relationship with God, that you know him, that you enjoy him, that you glorify him with your actions and with your body. And I think keeping that in mind, it surpasses what happens on the ground level in the hospital room. We do the best we can to try to help people and save people and reunite families and uh, preserve life when we can, because it's a gift. Life is a gift from God, right? But it is not the ultimate. What matters most, because all of us are going to die, is who we are in Christ, what he's done for us, and that we know him and have faith in him. And that, I would argue, is what the Bible teaches us is more important than actually chasing after treatments, um, especially when those treatments are futile. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Thank you for unpacking that for us. I think it's really, really important uh, because that's so opposite of how culture <laughs> thinks of how, you know, 21st century American society does not view health in that way, um, even in a lot of Christian circles. So I think it is important to, to ground our understanding in that biblical worldview. As I was reading your book, I couldn't help but realize how little I know about the devastation that critical care measures inflict upon the body. While we don't have enough time to discuss this as robustly as you do in the book, would you give us a few examples of commonly known interventions and the way that they might incapacitate the patient, making them unable to communicate about their wishes for care? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think the best way for me to illustrate this would be to actually describe what it would be like to wake up in the ICU. And I should preface this by saying that we actually did not know until about 10 years ago um, how traumatic these interventions are for people because people weren't surviving in the ICU. Uh, they were the sickest in the hospital and it was pretty rare that we do all these invasive things and they'd leave and, and go home. And even then, it took a while for us to start to study what are people remembering? What are they experiencing afterwards? Um, and what we found in the past few years is that some studies are showing that people who are in the ICU um, will actually suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And they suffer from it with about the same frequency as soldiers who returned from the Iraq war. So it's, it's significant, the harm that we can do. And it's important to remember that, yes, these things can cause suffering. And when there is hope that we can save someone, it's worth it. But it's important to remember the potential impact of this when someone's dying and when we cannot provide a cure, then we're inflicting suffering needlessly. And to try to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, a common scenario, someone comes in, they're having difficulty breathing, okay? They'll be scared, they'll be panicked. Anyone who's had any kind of struggle to breathe understands what I'm talking about. You go into panic. So they come into the emergency room, there's a team of doctors and nurses hovering around them. It's a chaotic scene. Someone says to them, we're going to put a tube down your throat. They just can't even answer because they can't breathe and they just maybe nod, right? Then imagine that, that you're this person. You fall asleep. You wake up. You're in a room that you don't recognize. You feel something in your throat, okay? Breathing tubes have to go through the vocal cords. And if you think about anything that goes down the wrong windpipe when you're eating, it's very, very irritating. It makes you feel like you're choking. So you feel something in your throat, feel something in your windpipe, and you start to cough. And you realize that there's something down your throat. You lift up your hand to reach for that tube and realize that you can't move your hand because your hand is tied to the bed. Then you look around and realize that there are lines 
puncturing your arms and your neck, and then there's a catheter in your urethra. And you look around and you're terrified because you don't recognize anyone. You don't know what room you're in. You don't know what's happened, but you know that you can't speak. You're coughing and you're tied down and you don't know what's going on. Then a nurse gives you a sedative and you fall asleep. But a few hours later when she wakes you up to make sure that your neurologic exam is normal, it happens all over again. And this cycle happens over and over and over. You know, so just to give an idea, it it's terrifying for people and people often will really suffer psychological trauma afterwards. In addition to the discomfort that you have from the tubes themselves, um, when if we have to perform CPR and you survive your event of cardiac arrest, we have to actually break ribs to do it properly. So then every breath you take afterwards is painful because your ribs are broken. Uh, I hope that gives you some indication of the overall experience is terrifying for people and can really cause suffering, which can be worth it if we can get you home. Uh, but if it's someone who's terminally ill, who has end-stage emphysema and metastatic cancer and is very debilitated and the, we cannot reverse the underlying process causing their respiratory failure or whatever it is that brought them into the hospital, then we're inflicting a lot of fear and a lot of anguish unnecessarily, which is really cruel. I mean, just your description there, I started, my throat started tickling. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this, this is terrifying because I was picturing myself there. And I think, you know, because we have access to a lot of TV shows that show, you know, ER and the trauma units. And so even if we haven't personally experienced it, and I know it's dramatized on TV, but I'm sitting here just using the visuals I have from those shows and yeah. picturing, you know, uh, picturing being in that situation. And I, I just personally uh, had to make sure to tell myself that what you were saying was not actually happening to me because it was so terrifying. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> That's what it is, though. People no, will say, absolutely. turn to their loved ones and say, do not ever put that tube down me again. Don't yeah. let them do it. You I, know? And and once again, if you know people are often, are often willing to endure that if it means they get to go home and see their daughter get married, you know, right. or if if there's a chance that we those things are going to bring you home. But too often, we don't talk about these issues ahead of time. Hmm. And so people just, the default, unless you've, declared your wishes ahead of time and thought about at the end of life, what would I be okay with? The default is we do everything. And so you could find yourself in the situation where you can't talk, you can't pray, you can't communicate your wishes, you're scared. And ultimately we never get you home. Ultimately you, you pass away there in that kind of a setting, you know? Right. And so it's just important that even though these, these are horrible things to talk about, it's important that we do. And then we talk with those we love about it so that we know uh, when the time comes, how we can best honor their wishes and best love them in that moment. It seems like one of the biggest issues at play when it comes to acute medical decisions for end-of-life care is the sanctity of life. And you talked about that at the very beginning of the interview. In your book, you wrote that difficulties arise when patients and loved ones interpret sanctity of life to mean do everything at all cost. And you say that research suggests that those with a high religious coping 
or those who depend upon faith to guide their decisions, seek more aggressive care at the end of life, even in the setting of terminal cancer. And that's a big surprise to me. Um, mm -hmm. Why? What do you mean by those statements? How can someone in the position of making medical decisions for a loved one better understand the contrast between these two ideas in a way that is both life-preserving mm -hmm. and merciful to the one who is suffering? What I would say is a really critical thing to try to tease apart, and you have to do this by asking the physician taking care of your loved one questions, uh, very specific questions, is, is the underlying cause of illness that's threatening my loved one's life reversible or not? And that's really the key, because the key thing to know about all these technologies that we use in the ICU, like ventilators, dialysis, medications to keep the blood pressure up, all these things, they don't actually cure you. Their, their intent is to support a failing organ until we can figure out a way to reverse the cause of illness. So to give you an example, uh, if someone comes in with respiratory failure, like I was just talking about, and they have pneumonia, and it's a pneumonia that's easily treatable with our armamentarium of antibiotics, we will put that person on the ventilator, the antibiotics should take effect, and in a few days, they'll be off the ventilator. The point of the ventilator was to support their breathing, to serve the function of their lungs while we treated the pneumonia. However, if you have someone who comes in with end-stage emphysema, lung cancer, who then has a fungal pneumonia that's much more difficult to treat, that is less likely to be something curable. In that scenario, the ventilator is likely prolonging death. We can't fix them with the ventilator. It just supports their lungs, and we can't fix the underlying issue. So a real important thing to try to tease out is, is this is the underlying issue that's making my loved one so sick something that we can fix? And sometimes the answer is very clear cut. Sometimes it's we're not sure. And it's fine. It's absolutely fine to continue any kind of interventions if the physician says, you know what, I'm really not sure. It's 50-50. Let's give it another few days and see how things go with XYZ treatment, you know. But it's it's just important to realize that the the technology we have, we can keep organ systems going without any hope of actually curing an illness. Um, and that's when it's important to recognize, okay, are we actually looking at the end of a loved one's life? And if if that's the case, we needn't continue pushing on with interventions that can cause suffering. We're not obligated to do that. And in fact, if we continue to do that and we push against death at all costs, as I said before, we're, we're really neglecting the hope of the gospel. That we don't, that death is going to come to all of us. And what do we do in that moment? Do we keep fighting it or do we look to the Lord and in prayer say, I wish for this, Lord, but thy will be done? Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's such a hard, you know, cross-section there for mm -hmm. anyone to be in that position. And especially, too, with the influence of our culture, which is so infatuated with health and vitality. I mean, you take one look at our spending habits, and you can know that that's true. I researched and found a statistic from the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health conducted a study in 2016, which reported that, quote, about 59 million Americans. Americans spend money out of pocket on complementary health approaches, and their total spending is a whopping $30.2 billion a year. 
So $30.2 billion a year on complementary health approaches. This isn't health insurance. It's complementary things. And so we put our money into what we treasure. Yet standing in dark contrast to that statistic is the decidedly Christian perspective that says, as you describe it in your book, long life is a blessing, but not the ultimate good. Mm -hmm. So how can we as followers of Christ reorient our way of thinking about our lives here on earth? Is it possible for us to be good stewards of our bodies without idolizing them in the process? Oh, I think everything has to go back to, you know, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. You know, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We're to honor God with our body, right? And, but that has to be the focus. The pursuit of wellness should not overshadow the purpose of wellness, which is to glorify him, which is to say we're to be stewards of these bodies he's given us. Let us be honorable to him with them. Let us not be overindulgent. Let us do good works for his name with them. You know, but the, the goal is to try to focus on an expression of our, our love for and uh, devotion to him. You know, and when we chase after things where they become an ultimate aim, I think we're we're missing the mark and we're neglecting um, what really is our, our purpose in life. We're made in his image so that we can steward his creation and glorify him and to enjoy him and to know him. When we pursue so heavily, <laughs> you know, um, perfection of our own bodies to the point where it's it's obsessive and it's not realistic, then we are chasing it after an idol. We're idolizing the creation instead of the creator. One of the parts in your books that really touched me, I mean, it got to the point where I actually welled up with tears in my eyes, was toward the end, I think it was in the conclusion, where you painted a picture of a touching exchange between yourself and an ailing Christian brother in Kenya. He was under the impression that he was being treated by doctors there in Kenya for hemorrhoids. He was taking some medications. He came to you and said, I'm taking these medications. Uh, they're not helping. I just need to someone... I'm." I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I just need someone to tell me, tell me what's what's going on. What's the truth? All of his paperwork that he had indicated to you when you were able to review it, that he actually had an incurable rectal cancer. And God, it was clear, had ordained that moment in time for you to be the one to let him know what the other doctors would not communicate to him. I was so moved by your spirit-filled response to this man's plea for the truth. And you replied to his question after reviewing his paperwork, your faith has made you well. And I just instantly teared up because the writing was on the wall. Death was imminent for him. Mm -hmm. So why is compassionate honesty more appropriate than the cultural reflexes we have of, of hopeful optimism or active avoidance? You know, we either want to mm -hmm. say, oh, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. You're mm -hmm. going to recover, you know, cheerio. <laughs> or we yeah. say uh, active avoidance like the doctors did with this man of just saying, oh, you know, it's just you've got some hemorrhoids or it's not a big deal. Just take these pills and, and you'll go on your merry way. And we just avoid the issue completely. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ empower us to tell people who are dying that mm -hmm. they are dying and there's nothing we can do, but your faith in Christ has made you well? Mm -hmm. Oh, and I, I should... um preface and say, because you mentioned culture, I had to tread really carefully here because the reason this gentleman had not been told his diagnosis was because there is an understanding in medicine in some other cultures, and this was true where I was on mission, that uh, 
people who are too poor to afford treatment should be spared the pain of knowing that they can't afford treatment. Mm -hmm. And it's partly because it's a shame-based culture, right? So when he kept showing up and it was clear what was the issue, but he couldn't afford the therapy, they thought that they were being compassionate by sparing him the truth. Mm. Um, but what I was seeing in front of me was that it was not ultimately compassionate because he was distressed by it. And he said, I feel like I'm being lied to. And he was because he says, I just, I want to know what it is that I'm, I'm dealing with because it doesn't make sense. They're giving me Tylenol and saying it's hemorrhoids, but I'm bleeding more and more. It was this awful moment where I just, looking at him, just prayed. And, and that one verse from Matthew 9 came to mind. And it was when the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years approached Jesus in the crowd and touched his cloak. And what really struck me as that verse came to my mind was that she knew that Jesus was God. It was her faith in who Christ was that made her well. And this was a gentleman that I knew, I know knew Christ. And so I tried to reach him with that to say, you know, you, yes, this has happened, but you're saved. You know, yes, this calamity has struck you, but God, but God has redeemed you with his grace. And he was peaceful when our encounter ended. He just... I went through everything medically, I drew diagrams, and I just kind of waited for his response. And he says, um, I can see that you have sympathy for me, and I, I thank you. And he said, I'm in God's hands now, and I know that God cares for me. You know, And it was, we cannot fix this, but you still have hope. Not, no matter what happens, you have the hope of Christ, that when your time on this earth ends, whatever the disease is that claims you, you know you'll be with Jesus. And nothing can take that away from you. And his love for you in Christ can never be washed away or eaten away by any disease. you know. And so it's so hard. And it's one of these things where I feel like in our own culture, too, because we stave off discussions of illness and death and we fight against illness as if it's an enemy, these discussions, I think, take more time and have to be made over a period of however weeks to months, however long it's taking for someone to grieve and come to terms with an illness. But if we can in, in any way point people to the fact that, that we need not despair because yes, this is hard and it's wrong and it's not the way it was meant to be. Death is abhorrent, but through Christ, we have hope and it's not the end. Really encouraging words of comfort there and just, you know, continuing to point us back to Christ and the gospel for our everlasting hope and our, our hope of life eternal with God. Mm -hmm. I want to take the moment because we have time for just one more opportunity here to really reach out and touch the listeners with some hope and some help. I want to give you the chance to speak to the listener directly. I do this every episode. And so there may be someone listening to this show who finds themselves in the position of making a difficult medical decision for a loved one. Maybe mm -hmm. they are confused about how to honor God with their choices while also remaining faithful to their loved one's request. What would you say to that person today to offer them the courage and clarity they need to handle these tough choices with biblical wisdom? Um, first of all, I would preface to say that for those who are not currently in this situation, but are hearing this, please have conversations with those you love. Do not be afraid of them. Yes, they're awkward. Death shuts down conversation quicker than any other topic at the dinner table. I understand that. But 70% of us at the end of life can't make decisions for ourselves. We don't have the capacity to talk 
or to think. And so it's vital that we have discussions so that our loved ones know what we want and so we know what our loved ones want so that we're, when we're in the position of having to navigate these issues, we can make sure that we're being honoring to the Lord and loving to those in our care. And to those of you who are struggling with this in the moment, first of all, I, all I can say is I just deeply empathize with your situation. It is harrowing. It's frightening. It's scary. It, even if you have prepared and talked about this, nothing adequately prepares you for the impact of having to make these decisions. What I will say is that, on the other hand, being in a position of um, making decisions for someone who cannot make decisions for themselves is living out our call to love one another as Christ loved us. You are li you're learning to love someone who is vulnerable and downtrodden and who needs you. And in thinking about what his or her um, wishes are, and that teasing that out requires that you think very carefully about what he or she required in life. If you didn't have these discussions to live life to the fullest walking with the Lord, and if they weren't Christian, what did they need to be able to live life to the fullest? What mattered most to them? What were their values? Um, and then thinking about what was their construct for suffering? And if you weren't something you talked about, frankly, think about the times in life that it seemed like life was too much for them and it was bearing down upon them. Think about what they were able to bear. Think about what was too much and try to piece together what they would say if they still had a voice. Our job when we're making these decisions isn't to superimpose what we would do for ourselves or what we think is right, but it's to, in a moment where we can beautifully honor those around us as image bearers of God, to be their voice one last time when they can never speak. And so I pray for you in these moments. I pray for God's peace and wisdom to spur you on. Please surround yourselves with people whom you can trust, who can point you to Christ, pastor you trust, people within the church you trust, whomever, and remain prayerful and just know that when you endeavor to be the voice of the one you love, you are loving them in their most vulnerable moment and in their time of need. Thank you so much, Katie, for, for sharing those encouragements with us today. Just so many really, really important things that we need to be considering with our loved ones. You know, what, like you said, whether we're in that situation now or we're just preparing in general to, you know, face it at some point. Either way, I think everything that you said here today in this interview was is just so helpful uh, to give us guidance and next steps forward. Well, will you please let the audience know where they can follow you? You know, if they want to stay connected with your writing ministry and all of your articles? Where's the best place for them to connect with you? Sure. I, I do keep a blog in the blog. I don't write on it much, but I maintain it mainly, mainly as a point of contact for anyone who wants to reach me. Um, so it's www.oceansrisesite.blog, the L-O-G. Uh, and there's a contact form there. Alternatively, you can actually reach out to Crossway Books and send an inquiry there and they will be able to get in touch with me. Great. And I'll be sure to link to your website in the show notes for this episode, just to make it easy for those who are listening, if they want to get connected on, on your blog. Well, thank you again, Katie, so much for taking the time to chat about your book and some of your experiences. And just thank you for taking the time really to write about a topic that many of us have no idea. We're just too, super naive about, you know, we've never experienced <laughs> these situations. And so it's like, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. And then you mm -hmm. realize, oh my gosh, 
I need to know all of this. So I'm just, again, thankful for your sacrifice and your obedience to the call to write a book for believers to equip us with this information because it definitely fills fills a gap, fills a need, and hopefully the Lord will continue to use it to bless those who are uh, facing very difficult decisions with their loved ones. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for having me on the show. And I just, I pray that the book is, is helpful to those who are navigating these issues. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Katie's books and some helpful articles. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.